0: Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mason NatSec. Now, on with the show. It's February 22nd, and welcome to NSI Live the National Security Institute's podcast home for our special events. Today, we are concluding our conversation about the ramifications of the riots on January 6th. This episode will be focused on the domestic terrorism angle, and we've gathered a bipartisan group of experts to discuss the issue, including Matt Olson, NSI Advisory Board member and the former director of the National Counterterrorism Center, Olivia Troy, former Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence, Rob Walker, NSI Visiting Fellow and Executive Director of the Homeland Security, Experts group and myself, Lester Munson, host of NSI's Fault Lines podcast, and former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So, for the panel, were the events of January sixth a riot, domestic terrorism, insurrection, or something
1: else? This is Matt Olson. I'll jump right in. I I uh, I think the answer is maybe uh, D, all of the above. You know, I if you look at at the events, you could call them uh, you could call it a riot, you could call it insurrection. Um, I think it's domestic terrorism. So it, it's a it, it, it to me, it's it's all of those things. And, and, you know, in some cases they have those terms have legal implications, uh, but certainly it, it fits the definition for for each each of those each of those terms.
2: I'm going to I'm going to agree with Matt. I think what you see there is action by individuals who are you know, for, driven for a variety of reasons. They're either taking political motivation, uh, motivated by what they believe was a call to duty, I would say. Um, they're also insurrectionists. I think, you know, let's be clear, they were uh, specifically going to the Capitol and they were adamant they wanted to overturn the results of a fair and free election, I would say. They did riot. I mean, they destroyed property. They They looted. They took things. And they were very aggressive. And their tactics and actions um, that led to loss of life and many people being hurt. And I think, yeah, so I think the checks the box for all of it.
3: Yeah, I think we'll we'll start off this podcast with unanimity. Uh, the answer is the all of the above. But I would put a finer point on the fact that all of the above with specific application to certain subsets of the population that day, only a few were insurrectionists, only a few were rioters. There were thousands on the mall. There were thousands at the Ellipse rally, uh, and most of them did not. Uh, commit those acts of violence, the acts of terrorism or insurrection. Uh, but those that did deserve to be prosecuted to the fullest extent. And I wish the FBI and other authorities the best of luck in pursuing them.
0: So what's the, what's the assessment? What's y'all's assessment of the impact of the pandemic on what we saw on January 6th? Of course, it's been a, it's a long, been a long, crazy year. We've had the uh, demonstrations uh, in the wake of the George Floyd murder, some of which got out of control, and we saw some bad things happening in, in several cities in our country. So there seems to be continuing violence in Portland. It was the crazy autonomous zone in Seattle. We had the episode at the Michigan State House. How, how much of this is just because Americans are, are a little too cooped up these days, perhaps for good reason, but it's, it's impacted us as a people negatively, and, and we're... We're not at our best right now.
2: I would say certainly that's part of it, right? You have a lot of people who have uh, been cooped up. I think that they've also been uh, more tuned in to social media. I would say different varying networks who are also, uh, quite frankly, feeding very focused at times uh, misinformation. And we're in a world of disinformation right now. And so I think, you know, all of these things play a role and a factor in terms of how these uh, protests and all of these other events that we've seen kind of develop, unfold. And I also think, you know, we were in a situation last summer where there were also, um, I think there's also divisiveness on the COVID pandemic that motivated a lot of these people in terms of their action, um, in terms of their anger to a certain extent for some of these populations. Um, that's my initial take on it.
1: Yeah, I, I think I, I think that's right. I, I... You know, in thinking about this question, Les, you know, I I think it's the the coronavirus. I I had sort of this overlay on on U.S. politics and society right now. I don't think it. I think in terms of January sixth, my my instinct is it played no, not really a, a significant role in the actual violence and the protests. It explains, you know, why I'm watching more TV, why I'm eating more late at night. You know that. That's true. But coronavirus and sort of being cooped up, as you put the question, it doesn't explain uh, marauders walking through the Capitol, you know, calling out uh, for the vice president. You know, that's a that's a dynamic that is deeper and more problematic and is not, I think, you know, not really explained in, in any meaningful way by the coronavirus. And it But I think Olivia is right. Like there's a broad sort of um, dynamic at play across the country that we've seen over this year, or maybe some of these events uh, take on a more, uh, maybe a little bit more significant, you know, because of the the stress on on society. But I don't think, you know, January 6th really can be explained by uh, a reaction to the pandemic.
3: I think the pandemic is certainly additive to the perspectives of the people that that acted uh, violently and the insurrectionists that, that came out that day. As Olivia pointed out, you know, you're, you're cooped up. You're, you're feeling more isolated from society. You think society is leaving you behind to a degree. Uh, and that's causing them to, to react in, in uncertain terms and irrational ways, quite honestly. Um, but was it the full cause of January 6th? Absolutely not. Uh, you know, those, these folks had intentions that have been growing for some time listening to this information. Uh, staying up late with Matt, watching too much TV uh, and, and seeing those those, uh, those conspiracy theories propagate uh, online and, and through the YouTube channels, et cetera. So uh, it, it was definitely a factor, but it wasn't the, the root cause. Uh,
0: the U.S. doesn't have a legal definition of domestic terrorism. Should we have one?
1: I, I'll jump in here. I think all of us probably have some perspective on this one. I mean, you know, we don't have a, we don't have a federal crime, uh, of domestic terrorism. There are definitions of terrorism, um, in this, in the statutes, uh, for, in the federal statutes. I mean, there's a definition of international terrorism and there's, an, there's a definition, at least, of, of domestic terrorism that's very similar with the exception that it, that it only encompasses, uh, you know, acts committed that, uh, within the United States and that don't, that don't, um, Cross transnational boundaries. So, you know, terrorism generally is uh, some sort of act of violence uh, undertaken to uh, achieve a political goal um, with that specific intent. What what we don't have, and what there's been a lot of discussion around, is whether we should have a federal crime uh, that is a domestic terrorism crime. Um, and there's, you know, there are I think really good arguments on both sides of that debate, and that's an interesting question. I I I tend to think that it would be a good idea to have a federal crime uh, for domestic terrorism, uh, but it's yeah, I think it's a is it it's definitely one of those questions that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of debate on both sides.
3: And just to level set again, I, I'm not a lawyer, nor did I stay at Holiday and Express, um, but I I typically am wary of proposing and pursuing new law in a in a reactionary manner. I, I fully agree with Matt's points. Um, you know, there are ways that the the folks. Deserve to be prosecuted, could be prosecuted uh, from January 6th. But if we are going to pursue a true domestic terrorism law, it needs to be done in a deliberate and bipartisan fashion because, you know, down the road, uh, it could be flipped. The script could be flipped and we could be facing a totally different scenario here and, and just don't want a reactionary law put into place that could be used against some other folks down the road
1: yeah i mean i I could say a little bit more about this which i i mean I, I think it's a really interesting question and it's probably worth you know you could spend a whole hour on this whether we should have a domestic terrorism statute i think uh rob's right like there are there are real concerns uh that uh that the a law that that uh criminalizes domestic terrorism could be used to target you know first amendment protected activity, and certainly there is a history in the u s of of uh, uh, the FBI and and the intelligence agencies uh, undertaking surveillance activities, you know that were targeting uh, protected speech, um, and that's a that's a real risk. And civil liberties groups and civil rights groups uh, are right to be concerned about that. I think the the on the other side of the coin, though, there is the benefit of having uh, a terrorism statute that actually treats the same acts as terrorism. So, like if if you had if you have a Somebody who shoots up a church or, or bombs a synagogue and that person has uh, transnational ties. In other words, has some connection to a overseas terrorist group. That's international terrorism. That person can be charged federally with the crime of, of, uh, that like material support to terrorism. If that same person commits that crime because they're a white supremacist, uh, there's no federal crime that outlaws that. And it, certainly they can be cha- They can be charged with other crimes, murder and, and others. But there's no terrorism crime, even though the acts themselves are essentially the same. So I think there's sort of a, a split on how those are treated under the federal criminal law that there's some I think there's a good argument to treat them as terrorism. And there's other ancillary benefits to that, which involve, you know, the commitment of resources and data collection and other things that go along with treating uh, that sort of action, that sort of crime as a domestic terrorism crime when it doesn't have a overseas connection. Olivia? I
2: think this is something that I think the, the Biden administration is really going to be grappling with, to be honest, because it is a complicated thing. And when it comes to civil liberties and uh, all sorts of second second, and third order effects in terms of freedom of speech and um, it becomes a harder thing to uh, to navigate, especially here in the United States with our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, um, we have, I would say, uh, I would some more limitations here in the U.S. than perhaps some of our foreign partners in foreign countries um, who do not have um, some of those checks and balances, I would say, in the way we do. Uh, I think in terms of being able to prosecute under domestic terrorism, that is a challenge, I think, that FBI continues to face. And I think that that's certainly something um, that needs to be examined. Uh, certainly, I saw that during my tenure. Uh, during the White House where we would have these conversations after domestic terror events where we had mass shootings, where we knew that it, they were far right or white supremacy related Um, and we would have these conversations. And it also, you know, crossed crosses over in tandem to discussions um, of social media and seeing sort of the rise of this threat on there and. Um, how we look at that through that lens. I think we're very good at sort of analyzing the problem on global terrorism, but when it comes to domestic terrorism, it's definitely a more complicated, uh, challenging situation.
0: So as someone, you know, who's been in Washington for a while and and spent a lot of years working uh, in and around the Capitol, it was, it was hard not to watch the events of January 6th, you know, from afar on TV and think you know, for for all the admirable personal courage being shown by Capitol Hill police officers in the moment, there seemed to be a failure previously to plan for something bad happening on January 6th when everyone knew uh, Congress had to certify the results of the Electoral College and the President clearly had been setting this up as a uh, possible moment of, of conflict. What's What's your all's assessment of of the kind of the management question there? How did how did this? How are we not ready for what happened?
2: I think you know when I look back at what happened on January sixth, and I certainly watched it the play by play unfold. Like uh, many Americans did that day, I was truly shocked at. I would say the lack of force protection that I saw around the Capitol that day based on the reporting that we were seeing on the live footage of the media. And it certainly was a stark contrast, I would say, to what I saw having worked in downtown D.C. at the White House at the time, to what I saw last summer in preparation for any protests, any events like that. I think from my perspective, I don't I, I didn't see January 6th as a I would say it's an intelligence failure because certainly all of the factors, all of the threats, all of the, I would say, um, indicators were there pointing that this had the potential to become a violent event based on what we were seeing on social media and also just sort of some of the language and the rhetoric, uh, leading up to January 6th and the certification of election at the Capitol. And so I don't. I think what what I view it at is is more of a lack of implementation and taking action on the intelligence that was there. And I have to say I was uh, pretty upset at watching how it unfolded. And I'm still very sort of confused as to how decisions were made across the U.S. government, especially at the Department of Defense and across of all law enforcement and what coordination went on there with the Department of Homeland Security uh, that allowed for this to actually happen. Because in terms of national security, in my opinion, that was a pretty big failure that day at the Capitol. I mean, it certainly sent a message, I would say, globally at, at how um, how weak the security posture is at the Capitol. And congressional leadership in the life of former Vice President Pence was put at grave risk.
1: So I'll, I'll just totally agree with Olivia. I, on this one, I, and you know, this is really, it's really upsetting, right? To see for us all to have seen that happen at the Capitol. And it's really inexcusable for there to be such an, a major failure of security, uh, at the seat of our government and at, at, at any time, but particularly such a crucial time as the certification of the uh, presidential election. So. And I I also agree with Olivia, there was plenty of intelligence, the information was available, this was not, you know, sort of a secret that we didn't obtain, uh, because we had an intelligence failure, it was a, and there's a lot more we need to know, but despite, you know, as I sit here today, it just appears to be a failure of leadership and planning, and execution. Um, and, And one that's really inexcusable, given, again, as Olivia said, we all have seen the police and law enforcement in the nation's capital, managed significant events uh, very effectively. And they have the resources, they, they have the people, they they know how to do this. They just didn't prepare or plan. And that is, again, saying that it takes nothing away from the specific acts of heroism and bravery that we saw you know over and over again on January 6th from individuals. Um, so I think there's a lot more we need to understand about what happened and learn from uh, to be better prepared for, you know, any type of action like this again, so that it never happens, uh, so that it never happens again.
3: I'd associate myself with Matt's comment there. There were lots of acts of individual and, and unit bravery and heroism uh, that went on that day, and, and thank you to those that stood their ground and, and did their best in what was truly really an awful and horrible situation. There's been a lot of chatter around what changes we should implement, whether the mayor of D.C. should be granted uh, deployment of Authority over the DC National Guard. Whether several other ideas have come out, and, and I, I again just sort of caution us to let's see the results of the investigations that are ongoing. Let's get the the truth of the matter and see what really occurred, where there was a failure in planning, where there was a failure in um, intelligence or leadership, uh, and point the blame in the right directions, and then assess what what policies, what procedures may need to be uh, relooked and, and reenacted. Um, but uh, again. For those that stood their ground, thank you, and, and you know, continue the great work.
0: So uh, today, uh, if you if you can drive by the Capitol, which is much more difficult to do, uh, they've closed down uh, significant parts of uh, Constitution Avenue and Independence Avenue. Uh, metaphor alert: uh, there's there's fences, new fences up, uh, w- what looks like razor wire. Is it uh, is it possible we've overreacted with uh, the amazingly increased physical security around the Capitol building.
3: I'll, I'll jump right in.
0: Yes, it, it's the people's house. It's the
3: people's Capitol. To protect it is one thing, to close it off and, and seal it off is completely another. I, I would, again, go back to you know the, the amount of chatter we've noticed, the, the, the amount of intelligence being gathered, and make an assessment on whether or not uh, it, it could be, report, the force protective measure could be uh, reduced a bit more.
2: Yeah, I would... Tend to agree with that. I think, you know, force protection a lot of the time and the actions taken uh, to secure a perimeter are really based on, on threat level normally, I would say. And you implement and take measures to kind of minimize a threat when you see, see something um, that causes pause or leads you to believe that you need to take precautions or additional measures based on whatever threat stream is there. And so. Again, I think those measures should have been taken prior to January 6th in preparation for such an event, given especially uh, what we had just seen weeks before when the Proud Boys came to D.C. and some of their actions when they did their rally. Uh, yeah, but I, to leave that up the entire time, I don't necessarily know that that, think that that's necessary. I can see why in the immediate aftermath right now, Um, also just, you know, as a sort of I I would guess peace of mind for the congressional leadership as well, who did live that traumatizing day directly. And the people that were there on the staff and the Capitol police who certainly did everything they could in that situation. I can see why that would be up. You know, I would be looking forward to, uh, to future events, such as, you know, we're seeing a lot of sort of chatter about what about March 4th, um, I would think that that would be a time to have the fencing up just in case it's a precautionary measure. I think it's sort of, I think that's going to be an evolving thing. And I think uh, that's something that I think the Capitol Police and people working on that should be, I guess, an evolving sort of uh, assessment of where they are on and whether that needs to stay up permanently or, or not. My guess would be it ebbs and flows, and I think you take certain measures when you have reason to believe that you need to. Yeah,
1: I think that's right. I I, I think it's would be a travesty to uh, imagine a day that the capital is surrounded by razor wire, and you know you just look at the inauguration on January twentieth, an event that is a celebration of democracy, and to see that event handled, I mean, part of it's COVID, but you know, over solely uh, virtually. Like I think we need to we need to return to. Uh, an open capital with security, but, you know, not the way it is now. And and the problem is that security measures tend to be a one-way ratchet, and there's risk averseness that sets in, and people don't like to kind of return to – when they've experienced an event like this, they don't necessarily, you know, reluctant to return to a period of less security. The, I think the, the challenge, but it's an opportunity, is to develop – you know, measures that will secure the Congress and secure the Capitol building that don't involve uh, these hardened physical barriers um, and and that rely on, you know, lessons learned from this event. So I, I do I'm pretty optimistic that we're not going to have this is we're going to return to a sort of more normal state at the Capitol uh, in the coming days.
0: All right, let's let's shift a little bit to kind of the the rhetorical basis that was used uh, on January 6 for some of these attacks the story of the false story of the stolen election and all of these crazy allegations uh, that were made about uh, about the election in November and the result and this this narrative that somehow uh, something was taken from the rightful winner which which uh, for all for all evidence shows is is totally false But that was motivating people. We've we've had a long history in our country of uh, freedom of speech. It's our it's the First Amendment to our Constitution. Even when that speech is hateful or offensive, we defend people's right to make that speech. It's uh, it's part of who we are. Has has the Internet changed that has the ability to to promulgate a false narrative, a fake story, a lie? Should that be changing the way we think about the First Amendment?
1: All right. Well, I was sort of hoping somebody else would take this one because this is a hard one. (laughs) I know we all have views on it. Olivia and Robin. Yeah, yeah, like this is a hard, this is really a really hard part of the problem and maybe the, the, the sort of crux of the matter. Um, I mean, just to specifically answer your question, Les, I don't think the internet should change the First Amendment. I think, you know, it's sort of, uh, the, one of the most sort of, you know, highly valued uh, virtues of our country and our history. So I think, um you know, I think remaining committed, committed to the first amendment is really, you know, of paramount importance. There's no doubt that the, you know, the internet and, and social media provided the platform for groups, these groups and individuals to join forces, to mobilize, to, to radicalize. And, and that's, that's a dynamic that, that, that creates a greater challenge today than we would have faced uh, 30 or 40 years ago. So that's, we have to reckon with that. That's, that's part of what the government needs to do working with the social media companies and other parts of the private sector and, and civil society. This is just a, a hard challenge, but the, you know, the false narratives and disinformation have been around, you know, since time immemorial. It's just that we're now in a time where the internet provides a, uh, an accelerant to those sorts of false narratives. So I, I'm, like I'm sort of optimistic that what we are experiencing with uh president trump former president Trump is an anomaly in our politics and um and and maybe that's uh maybe that's too optimistic, but I think we have got the resilience to kind of deal with this uh and as and, and we'll and we'll see some of it a rea- a reaction to what happened and the and and sort of the violence uh that happened as a result and that will help us return to a more uh you know a more normal state so i again i
3: We're gonna, we're not gonna find much disagreement on this panel, I don't think. Uh, I, I agree with Matt. The first amendment is sacrosanct and it's one of our founding values and it needs to be continued to be enshrined as one of our, you know, bedrock um, principles in our country. And that being said that, you know, there are some vile things that are protected by that and it's absolutely disgusting, but we, we should not be looking to over regulate and over, over police the internet and trying to Suppress some of this, some of this hatred and some of this disgust. Uh, I would, I would also point out too that it it starts with a respect for each other and an ability to hold civil discourse. Um, I would point to to Dan Balding's work over at uh, CSIS on restoring um, civics as a as a bedrock educational value uh, across our country. We we can't even come to agree to disagree on many topics nowadays. You know, somebody. Drops on the rooftop on their, on their social media platform, uh, whatever their position may be. And unless, unless you stand right alongside them and champion with them, uh, they're going to can't, you know, you you end up, you run the risk of getting canceled. And it's, it's just really absurd that we can't even have meaningful conversation to try to find a compromise in the middle. We stake our positions and, and hold fast on either side and we, we don't give ourselves a chance for good, sound civil discourse.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, certainly I would say the rise of, of social media and the internet has, um, obviously made access to information, um, easily and more readily available. You know, we're no longer in the days that I grew up in where I had to go to the encyclopedia and pull it off a shelf somewhere to actually look something up. Um, you can just, you know, find it all online there. And so I think certainly technology has evolved in the space. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm also a big believer in freedom of speech and I think that um, there is a way to work with with major tech platforms and social media. I think that's something that um the government needs to do more of. I know there's been some efforts on this in this space, but I think there is a way to kind of look at the problem in terms of, of, of speech and what's happening here on some of these threats in a more cohesive, uh productive way together, I would say, where you're not Necessarily, you know, trying to, um, infringe on freedom of speech or change, change that. I think that's fundamental to who we are as America and our democracy. But there are certainly, you know, there's a difference between freedom of speech and, and I would say hateful speech that leads to violence, or there's a difference between, um, speech or things on platform and media that are talking about things. And unfortunately, a lot of disinformation out there. Uh, but it's different from when someone is live streaming, uh, when they're actively shooting people, like we saw with the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand, right? That's awful. Uh, there's a difference there, and so I think you know this will be a complicated, complicated problem. I would say, um, like Matt said, that we'll be sort of kind of dealing with for a while. I think Biden administration will be also grappling with how do you kind of put measures, how do you uh, sort of deal with the fact that you know the internet is a powerful tool. It's you know a tool for information. Um, that can be used for good information and bad information, right? Good actors and bad actors, um, use these, these types of means.
0: Let's, uh, let's get a little specific here. Uh, there is the elephant in the room here is QAnon, right? Which is this collection of conspiracy theories, uh, kind of a, in a way, a magnificent uh, accumulation of a bunch of really nutty theories, near delusional, some of them, uh, that have become more and more material as the months have gone on for the last, uh, three, four years. Uh, it started with the, the, even before QAnon with Pizzagate, we had a near attack at a, at a restaurant in Washington DC. We had the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th and there's, there's a direct line kind of goes straight through QAnon from, from one to the, to the other. How, how should, uh, and, and we've got a, We've got two members of Congress who were or are adherents to QAnon theories. We have a president, former president, who refuses to condemn QAnon, worried about alienating potential followers. So we've seen social media companies deplatform QAnon adherents. It's entirely their right to do so. They're private companies. They don't have to. They don't have to give free speech to anyone. Kick people off if they want. How what's the dilemma for law enforcement, particularly at the federal level, when we see QAnon behind a lot of these bad acts, but also it's it's views that are being held by constitutional officers of our government. So how should the FBI and other federal security agencies be working on, on the QAnon problem?
1: I I'll jump in here. I, I think I mean I think picking up on on both uh, Olivia and, and Rob's last, you know, comments on on the general challenge of uh, you know, protecting first amendment rights while still uh providing uh, you know, while still being able to go after violence uh yeah, that's that's that we've seen taking place. Um so uh, look, I mean QAnon is just one species of a of all, of, of other types of of crazy conspiracy theories. It certainly has gained some traction and some notoriety. What, when, you know, your question less about how should the FBI and, and, and law enforcement deal with this? To me, there is a need for really clear guidance, legal and policy guidance for, uh, and I'll use the FBI in particular as an example for the, for the FBI to understand where the first amendment, you know, ends and where their appropriate role In investigating and prosecuting uh, violent uh, actors uh, you know begins and and this is a problem because of the you know the history of this country of of, uh, law enforcement targeting uh, political groups you know going back to the 60s and 70s and what we saw uh, exposed through the church committee uh, in the 1970s of uh, abuses by the FBI and and intelligence agencies going after uh, political opposition so but what, but what, what, what there there is a clear line, or at least there is a line that needs to be drawn, and it needs to be uh, clearly drawn for law enforcement to say when when somebody engages in speech that is inciting violence, even if that speech has to do with other aspects of you know First Amendment protected speech, like about an election or about you know what the, the workings of government. When it veers into it's inciting violence, then it's an appropriate matter. For the FBI to investigate, and they need to take aggressive action. So, and I'm not saying that's easy to do, but what what if I'm a line uh, special agent in the FBI? I want to have some clear guidance there that helps me know when I'm, you know, when I'm on the right side of that line in carrying out, you know, my responsibilities.
2: Yeah, I'll agree with that, and I think, uh, you know, to take us down. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too much and take us into the dark. Darkness, I will say, and be too overly depressing, which I tend to do, I've been told, by the way. So just uh, prepare yourself for that one. I think what's going to be kind of really hard, too, for the federal government is really uh, the role of counterintelligence within the federal government, which is probably going to alarm and scare somebody who's listening to this in terms of what's really going on here um, in our law enforcement, in our national security community. Um, I would say we'll have to be pretty vigilant on that as well, because Look, QAnon, uh, people who are subscribing to it, people who are following it, uh, we're seeing a lot of people that it's like your neighbor, your relative. Uh, We're seeing a pattern here where it's everyday people uh, that are, you know, either watching a certain platform or a certain network who is uh, sort of supporting these series and sharing this. And so I think it's going to be an increasing challenge also to I would say have police forces also police within if I can say it that way in terms of what's going on here and watch for trends internally as well because I think that that is also um, a very dangerous thing that's happening and overall it's just very dangerous for the security of our country and the homeland.
1: I think that's a great point, Olivia it both and I, I would expand that to include the military so that's a that's a really hard right. problem law enforcement and military and where these some of these Conspiracy theories might be taking root, and understanding uh, the challenges in those institutions that protect us.
3: I think they're pretty well covered, at Lester. So
1: now that
2: everyone's depressed, sorry about that. (laughs) Let me be clear. As a homeland security person, I'm sure Matt feels that we all feel this way too. Like, it pains me to actually say that.
1: It it hurts
2: to say that out loud. I hate saying that out loud because I'm so you know I'm pro law enforcement. I'm pro. National security—it's my passion. It's what I've spent most of my career uh, supporting, and it—it it does hurt to say that out loud.
0: We saw some militia groups on January sixth. Uh, the names have become a little bit familiar now. Proud Boys, Oath Keepers. There were others. Is th- are these groups a relatively new phenomenon, or have we seen groups like them in the past? In other words, what I'm trying to ask here is—is is this this internal militia problem getting worse or is this something that has been kind of a steady state throughout our
2: history i would say i, I could i could kick it off and then hand it over uh this has been an ongoing problem these groups with them were not you right. know did not surface overnight they've been in existence um for quite some time and and something i think that sometimes gets lost is the reach uh the transnational reach of these, uh, groups, um, the white supremacy neo-Nazi groups, uh, while their founders may be American, these are actual global networks. I would say that you see in other countries, like in Russia and Scandinavian countries. Um, this isn't, this isn't just something that we're grappling here in terms of where we definitely, you know, it's a domestic terrorism issue for us here in the U S, but these networks are just like other terrorist groups and other transnational criminal groups. Uh, they are they are global and they exist globally.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Olivia. This is, we do know that these groups do have transnational connections and that's, um, I mean, that's an important point from an intelligence standpoint and also gives, you know, the U.S. government uh, work at, uh, an incentive and imperative really to work with other countries, you know, to get a handle on this. You know, I think that, like Olivia said, I think these groups have been around a long time. They're certainly more notorious and, and, and visible right now one one thing i one other point i would just add is that looking at there's sort of the legal authority for groups like this to exist these sort of militias that operate outside of any sort of state uh, authority or sanction you know there's a there's a pretty good set of uh, a, a pretty good work that's gone on at Georgetown and Mary McCord has led to show that there is no legal authority for these armed militia groups that are anti-government or exist outside of uh, of the authority of government to exist and You know, I would just, you know, just recommend the work of of Mary McCord and her team at Georgetown, which has looked across all 50 states and really has debunked the idea that there's some Second Amendment right for uh, these anti-government militia groups to train and and exist uh, without, you know, without more accountability. Yeah,
3: I wish they would all just sort of fade away again. Uh, But no, it's not a new phenomenon. It's been going on for quite some time. Uh, It's powered by the Internet. It's powered by social media, their ability to... Uh, engage and connect has brought them up to a, you know, higher numbers. Um, I would add too, that, you know, they're following a similar path that the cartels and and, uh, and gangs have followed. They are recruiting people from, uh, law enforcement and military backgrounds to improve their own base, to improve their own, um, training and their own insights. Um, and, and that's, it's absolutely vile and disgusting. And, and I hope we can find a way, uh, to, uh, to stem the tide there. Yeah, but it's it's definitely not new.
0: So, given given our uh, our closely held, dearly held American constitutional liberties around speech, assembly, privacy, is it is it likely we're just going to have to accept some level of domestic terrorism risk going forward?
2: And I would say that there's certainly a rise in the threat of domestic terrorism. We've seen this increasing in the past couple of years. Uh, you know, I've, I'll try not to get overly political about this, but. I think what has happened is a lot of um these types of theories and groups have been emboldened by some of the political rhetoric that has happened um the past four years and I think um it is challenging when you have a lot of disinformation out there um and you have people in leadership that are um doubling down on some of these theories and feeding this to their followers because what happens is you have people in authority and people in elected office. Um, and when, I, and i you know, I strongly believe this when you're an elected official or a person in leadership, words matter, right? That, that's across the board in any organization. People are watching and they're, they're going to follow if they support you and they um, believe in you. They're going to follow in your footsteps. And I think that that is where this will remain a problem um, for the foreseeable future. And I think that is kind of the social responsibility of making sure that you sort of hold yourself accountable, I would say, if you're a leader and elected official and kind of the role that you're playing in this.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It Leadership matters, rhetoric matters, and, and that has certainly stoked fires recently. Could we accept some level of domestic terrorism risk? No, I don't think we could ever accept it. But as long as there are cars in the road, there will, will be car accidents. As long as there are people, there will be some on the fringe of society who want to change what they feel has wronged them. Uh, that doesn't mean we should accept it, It means we should prepare for it. It means we should look, put in mitigating strategies. It should. It means we should also work to educate and off ramp those who are on the road to extremism. And I think we need to put more resources and studies into how to do that effectively. And there's some, you know, great programs out there across the Fruited plains that have uh, been very successful, uh, from not only white nationalists and jihadis, but from a range of extremist ideologies. Um, we need to be looking at the mental health of people and, and their their feeling of well-being in society and not just um, pushing them further and marginalizing them further and, and calling them extremists and terrorists and just trying to battle them rather to uh, recoup them.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I just would add, you know, I mean, it's worth pointing out that the, the FBI and, and the Department of Homeland Security have identified uh domestic terrorism uh as as the greatest domestic threat we face uh, more significant right now than uh international terrorism and you know that the, that that those conclusions are borne out by the statistics over the last several years in terms of the uh, number of uh attacks and number of Americans killed and so we just need to take this threat more seriously and you know commensurate with the nature of the way in which it threatens us um as so sort of seen so starkly on January 6th so um that we have the wherewithal We've, we we sh- we we sh- to to address this threat we did it with uh, after 911 you know it's not not all the tools are going to be the same and certainly there's some as your question suggests less you know there's challenges around the first amendment and um civil liberties that we need to ser- very much take into account as we address the threat of domestic terrorism but you know the the, the I think I do think the administration now is, is clearly got their sights set on this problem and is looking at all of the options, including the ones Olivia and Rob identified, to to really tackle it head on. So I, I think um, you know I think there's reason to be optimistic about uh, where we'll be in 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 a, in a few years on this threat. Grant, what question should I have asked?
0: So one question is that we spent a lot of time today talking about the First Amendment, but let's talk about the Second Amendment a little bit. After the events of January 6th, a variety of the uh, police forces and National Guard members who were there said that they did not want to use deadly force because they realized how many guns were in the hands of the rioters. Um, Should we be doing something more to uh, eliminate our gun violence problem in the U.S.? And would that trickle down uh, for our domestic terrorism problem?
2: Well, I'll be honest. I really grappled with this firsthand after the El Paso shooting, uh, which took place in my hometown and where I grew up. And I had relatives that were impacted by that event. And there were a lot of discussions in the aftermath of that event on how do you talk about it? What do you do about it? And it's connected to domestic terrorism. But the issue and the wall that we had at the time, and again, every administration is different, was gun control and gun violence. And I think that is that is a very challenging topic, I would say, politically to navigate. Personally, you know, my personal opinion is that, you know, I am from Texas. I will say that I'll own that. And in Texas, we, we like our guns. But I think that there need to be some strong checks on who uh, how you get guns and things like that. So um, I don't know if I'm answering your question very eloquently, but I'll say that I love this. And it is a very it's a complex thing. And it's something that is, I think, is consistently debated Um, in government, especially at, at a more political level. It becomes a very polarizing political issue
3: yeah way to end with a softball grant uh, <laughs> nothing like dropping the loaded bomb right at the end so it, Olivia hit on it it it's definitely a politically loaded question uh, regardless of how you approach it i that full disclosure i I am a gun owner I am a trained firearms user I, and I react negatively to the term gun control um I think we need to have a good sound discussion around you know gun regulation and and proper um, guardrails to put in place, uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm all for registration, uh, laws and, and things like that. Um, but when you use a term as absolute as control, uh, it gets a negative, it, it's a, it seats a negative connotation in, in people's heads and they're going to react to it negatively. Again, I think it goes back to civil discourse and, and trying to find what the good ground is that we can all agree to meet on and, and have reasonable, uh, laws that do protect the second amendment rights and also work to reduce, we will never eliminate, but reduce the the amount of gun violence in our nation.
0: Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mason Sec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.